Welcome everybody to all of our campuses today. Glad you could join us. I want to welcome those of you also watching online around the country and world. Always glad when you can dial in as well. You know, I've had a number of people tell me that uh, they're having a hard time keeping up with the lawns, with your grass, mowing grass and so forth. I'm lucky because my wife mows our grass. She kind of enjoys it. And so yesterday I just watched her just fire that sucker up. It is a beautiful thing to see. And uh, you gotta, you got to love a woman who mows your grass. Um, I know that someday I'm going to have to buy her a ride or more, and I'm just trying to hold off on that as long as I can. But anyway, I've got it made. Uh, we're on a series called A Time for Everything, based on Ecclesiastes, written by a man, Solomon, who had wealth and power, but he came to a point in life where he wondered if there was more to life. He had inherited the throne from his father, King David, and along with it came an estate that would have made Donald Trump look like chump change. Solomon had more money, more property, power, military strength, and wisdom than anybody on the planet. But when he reached the top, he thought to himself, I wonder if there's more. I wonder if I've missed something. I've owned everything there is to own. I've experienced everything there is to experience. I've eaten the finest foods, drank the finest wines, traveled to the most exotic places. I've worn the finest clothes and been with the finest women. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this. He says, I amassed great sums of silver and gold, hired wonderful singers, had many beautiful women, everything a man could desire. I became far greater than any other king, yet my wisdom stayed with me so I could evaluate everything. Here's a guy who purposely threw himself into every sort of work, every sort of sport, food, pleasure, and relationship there was to find out if there was more. Now this next verse I'm going to show you is just a head popper. He says to himself, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Anything I looked at and I wanted it, I acquired it. Anything I wanted in this world, I got it. And then he says this, I wanted to see. I mean, I had all kinds of time, I had all wealth in the world to do this. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for people to do during the few days of their lives on earth. And so he dives headfirst into every experience, every pleasure that there is on the planet, and he comes to a conclusion. It's very odd. He says, I've discovered that everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing, nothing I did was gained under the sun. He's saying that no matter how much or how little you have, no matter what you eat, drink, spend, or acquire, at some point in your life, you kind of wake up and it all begins to feel like you're chasing after the wind. That even when you get some of the things you've always wanted, you realize you're still reaching for something more. I wonder today, what is that something for you? What is that one thing that if you thought you acquired it, would satisfy? What's the magic number in your life that you think if you got to that number, you'd be it? You'd be set? What possession? What person? What experience would that be for you? The wealthiest and wisest man in the world said, you know what? I've been there. There is no number, there is no possession, achievement, food, drink, or person under the sun 
that can ultimately satisfy the human heart. Have you noticed this? Phones are never sleek enough, are they? Guys are never buff enough. Some of us are. (laughs) Women are never pretty enough. Most beautiful women never think they're pretty enough. Cars are never nice enough. Incomes are never big enough. No matter what the line is, where the line is, it's never quite enough. And so this man, Solomon, having searched high and low, coming coming up empty, he, he just sort of blurts it out. In exasperation, he says, so I hated life. Chapter 2, 14. I hated it. Have you ever said that? That you hate your life because you didn't think you had what you wanted? It was just kind of an empty deal. I want to inject two insights that might give us some hope uh, today. The first insight is contained in a little phrase that Solomon uses quite often in this text. He uses the phrase, under the sun. So far, everything Solomon's pursued has been under the sun, which means without God involved. And he's saying it's a dead end, that when we pursue our relationships, work, and life on a purely earthly, horizontal level without God, we will end up empty and disillusioned. And that disillusionment can actually get people to start looking above the sun. But he says anybody who lives life purely on the horizontal without God will quietly start wondering, is this this it? Is this all there is? Why does my life seem so pointless at times? Because, friends, I'm telling you, that's how life is under the sun without God. Second insight is this. Solomon had so much of everything, he lost his desire for anything. Isn't this true? You notice this? He had so much of everything. He lost the tingles and thrills. Nothing could satisfy him. He was so overindulged that nothing excited him anymore. He had, the more he had, the more bored and disillusioned he became. And by the way, this is one of the dangers, I think, of affluence. Some people have so much of everything, they've lost their desire for anything. Some of you know that I go on a Boundary Water canoe trip every year in May that pushes my body to extremes. It's a 17-mile paddle and portage that just about kills me. And the older I get, the more I like, feel like dying whenever I go on this thing. Everything about this trip is hard. You know, lugging all our gear and Duluth packs over portages, canoes in and out of this place, battling wind and current, cutting wood for fire, cleaning fish, preparing food, filtering water. I'm telling you, about 80% of this trip is not fun. But we do it every year. 80% is just brutal. But I'm telling you, stopping at the DQ in Ely on the day out is absolutely unbelievable. On this trip just here in May, I hadn't changed my clothes in four days, not even for sleeping. So when I walked into the Ely DQ, I had a funky smell, a mixture between campfire smoke, fish guts, and body odor. But nobody even flinched at the Ely DQ. I fit right in. When I bit into my charbroiled hamburger, I sat down with a double cheeseburger fried chocolate shake. When I bit into this hamburger, the ketchup and mustard squirted out the sides, dripped down my chin, all over my fingers and shirt, and it was pure pleasure. 
Every spoonful of my shake reminded me that there absolutely is a God. How else do you explain the miracle of ice cream and chocolate all put together? When I got home, my son was describing a fine meal that he and his wife had enjoyed at a nice restaurant recently. And I wanted to say, yeah, but I had the number three at the Ely DQ. Top that. <laughs> now, friends, part of the reason this tasted so divine is because we had just spent four days eating instant oatmeal and granola bars. My shower that night felt like a five-spa star, a five-star spa. I've never been to a spa, so I don't know how to say the word. But my shower felt so good because I hadn't bathed or felt warm water in four days. Do you realize how amazing it is, how wonderful it is to just turn a faucet and have warm water come down on top of your head? Do you know how amazing that is? How wonderful it is to lay down in a soft bed next to your wife after sleeping on the ground next to your brother-in-law for four days. Do you know how amazing that is? See, Solomon had lost that. He was so overindulged with everything, he no longer appreciated anything. He lost his desire for all things in life. And friends, I'm telling you, I never want that to happen to me. I never want to stop enjoying the simple things because I've been so overindulged. There's a danger to affluence. Now, some of us are saying, Bob, having too much is not my problem. I'm barely scraping by. You know, where do I find meaning and satisfaction in life? Well, having come to the conclusion that so much of life is meaningless, look what Solomon says next. He says, a person can do nothing better, really, than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his or her work. This is actually from the hand of God. He's saying, look, if you have enough to eat, which many people in the world don't, if you have enough to drink, if you can find satisfaction in your job, you're a very blessed person. You've got it made. See, God doesn't want us to dread life, dread our jobs, but find satisfaction in them. He says, this is from the hand of God. You know, how is that possible? How, how is it possible to have a happy Monday? My wife says by finding a job that starts on Tuesday, and there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> now, don't raise any hands on this, this question, but I wonder today, how many of you would say you love your job? How many of you would say, I simply tolerate it? And then how many of you would say, I can't stand if you're like me, there's, there's a mix of all three. Sometimes I love my job, other days I don't. But Gallup, Gallup's latest poll found that only 30% of all American workers love their job. 52% merely tolerate it. And a full 18% of all workers absolutely hate their job. Which means that 70% of all workers in America either just tolerate or hate their job. And that's unfortunate when you realize that you're going to spend 30 to 40 years of your life at work. It's a tough way to live. So I want to talk a little bit today about how to change that. I want to, I want to talk about four alignments 
that your job needs to align with, four things, four areas that your job needs to align with so that it can be a source of satisfaction to you and not dread. And the first alignment is this, simply the God alignment. The God alignment. Solomon's message is that when you approach your work on a purely horizontal level, just to get a paycheck, just to produce a product, you're going to be disillusioned. But folks, when you realize that your work is a gift from God and that your Wednesdays matter to God as much as your Sundays do, I'm telling you, it can change you. Look at Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, doesn't matter what job it is, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for people. It means that whatever your work is, it matters to God and it honors him when you do your job well. School teachers who teach well, builders who build well, business people who lead well. When you bring your very best to the workplace, you are honoring God because work is a sacred and holy thing. In addition, friends, I know countless, countless people in our church who view their work as an opportunity to spread God's love to other people at their workplace. Even if you're in a difficult work environment, you got to remember if you're a Christian here today, all day long while you're at work, Jesus Christ lives inside you by his spirit. And he wants you to bring his love and kindness and excellence to those who are working around you. Can you imagine what would happen if all 20 plus thousand of us brought our very best to the workplace uh, Monday morning? That, we, that if we brought God's excellence, love, and kindness to other people, I think we'd change our entire city if all 20,000 of us did that. Just last weekend, we talked to a guy who had been praying for a colleague at work, and he was inviting him to come to our church. And last weekend, this colleague and his wife finally said, okay, we're coming. And they came to our church, and both of them accepted the invitation to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. They got their sins forgiven last weekend. They got on a new path to following Christ, all because this guy at our church thought that, you know, God might want to use me where I work, with the people I work with. So the first alignment is align your work with the work of God, because I'm telling you, it's not just a job. And by the way, those of you who are you know, stay-at-home parents, stay-at-home moms or dads, you've got one of the most important jobs on the planet. And God wants to use you to raise your kids in that way. Second alignment is this, passion, the passion alignment. Man, when, you, when you're in a job that fits with your passion, it's like, it's like playtime. Now, your passion is something that you're very good at and you love to do. And when you're in a job that fits your passion, I mean, you're a lucky person. You know, some of you have a passion for construction or counseling or accounting. I don't understand why, but you do. Some of you have a passion for mechanics or landscaping, engineering, architecture, law, medicine, filmmaking, music, or marketing. And you love it. In Galatians 6.4, look what it says. Be sure to do what, here's the key word, what you should do. Then you'll enjoy the personal satisfaction of having done your work well. The Bible says, friends, be sure to do what you should do. Not what your father, mother, or friends think you should do. They can advise you, but 
Man, you got to do it God's way. Sometimes I see parents trying to push their son or daughter into a certain vocation because that was their vocation. And, you know, the child is like, that's not, that's not how I'm wired. And the Bible says, you know, every person needs to do what they should do, not what somebody else thinks they should do. Now, even then, even if you're in your area of passion, everybody has a bad day at work now and then. I have a, nep- I have a nep- nephew, Nathan Merritt, who's a doctor. He's a physician. And Nate's this six foot five, 200 plus pound giant. But he's the most wonderful Christian young man you'll ever want to meet. Very gentle, very kind in his manner. A while back, there were about 20 of us relatives at a gathering. It was a Christmas gathering, actually. We were all just telling stories, family stories. And Nate's wife, Jen, was there. And Jen said, Nate, tell him about the one exam you did when you were in med school. So Nate says, oh. He says, this is so embarrassing. But they taught us how to have good bedside manners to make the patient feel comfortable. So Nate said, I'm supposed to say, hi, my name is Nathan Merritt. I'm a third-year intern, and it will be my pleasure to complete your exam today. Well, it was Nate's first breast exam, and this lady... This lady was a 50-year-old woman. He was 24. So he was nervous to begin with, and it's, even though he's a doctor, you know, it's a little strange giving an exam to a person like that. So she's waiting in the waiting room for him. Nate comes up to the door and takes a deep breath and says to himself, I can do this. I can do this. And he pushes through the door and he says, hi, My name is Nathan Merritt. I'm a third-year intern, and it'll be my pleasure to examine your breasts today. I mean, (laughs) she said, excuse me? I mean, he totally fumbled the ball. He said, I was so embarrassed. I was so flustered. I just walked out the door. My supervisor had to cover for me. Nate became an anesthesiologist after that (laughs) because he didn't want to deal with stuff like that. You can't blame the kid. So everybody has a bad day at work, but when you can align your passion with your job, it can be really cool. (laughs) Third alignment is the challenge alignment. I know I'm going to get emails on that. I could care less. I'm 58, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, all right? I'll still get them, I know it. It's all right. All right, third challenge is the challenge alignment. Now, I've taught on this before, and it's not new with me, but there's three levels of challenge, and and as you look at this chart, I want to ask you where you think you are with your work. First level is the under-challenged level. Some of you are at this place. You know, work's a drag. You spend many hours just walking the halls and talking to people, bothering people, you know, whatever. And you're just trying to fill the hours of the day. And it is so boring. And it's, you're under-challenged. And it's no fun. And if you stay in that situation too long, you'll probably end up quitting. Next level is appropriately challenged level. This is when you're fairly pleased at work. You're utilizing your gifts and your talents. Relationships are pretty good. Work is in a good place, and you're appropriately challenged at work. 
The third level, though, is the dangerously over-challenged level. And you know that you're in this level when on Sunday evening at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, your stress level starts to rise. And your stomach starts to churn because you know what's waiting for you on Monday morning is impossible for you to complete. That by the end of the day on Monday, you're going to have more work to do than when you started with. You are dangerously overchallenged. You'll run frantically all day long. You're going to feel crazy amounts of pressure and be stressed out most of the day. Incidentally, you don't do your best work when you're overly stressed. You don't relate well to people when you're stressed. You don't make your best decisions. You don't have your best creativity. And I'm telling you, friends, if you stay in the dangerously over-challenged level too long, and I tell you this because I love you, but if you stay in this range too long, especially if you're way up here, something, I'm telling you right now, something is going to break in your life. Could be your health. That'll break. High blood pressure, chronic back pain, maybe even heart failure. Your health can break. Your relationships can suffer and break. Your marriage can break. I've seen it many, many times. Your connection with your kids can break. I remember the day I was laying on a couch after a stressful run here at church, and my son, who was about eight years old at the time, walked up to me and said, Dad, let's go out and play catch. And I reflexively said to him, not now, David, I'm really tired. I will never forget this moment. He dropped his head, he turned away, and quietly said, you're always tired. And he was right. That had become my automatic response. After he said that, I thought to myself, what deadline or project at work is more important than playing catch for 10 minutes with my son on a Sunday afternoon? If I don't have enough time or energy left for that, something's going to break. Now, parents, to be fair to all of you, this is a tension that you're going to have to manage. It, it, it's filled with guilt and, you know, confusion, and you got to manage this very well. It's a difficult thing to manage. Some of you parents spend plenty of time with your kids, plenty of time. Others of you, not enough time. And it, it's, it's a moving target. It changes as your kids grow how much time you have to be there for them. And by the way, everybody has seasons of over-challenge where there's no time available for anything but work. Everybody goes through that. Where there's just seasons of high challenge. But if you go through a season like that, you've got to build in vacation time. And time off. So something doesn't break. One of the questions I want to raise here is where do you do your best work? It's not in the appropriately challenged area some, pe some people think. Research shows that we all do our very best work just right above this line. Where you're where you're stressed just a little bit. It, it's, if you can think of lifting weights, which is obviously something I do. <laughs> when you lift weights, you need to stress your muscles just a little bit for them to bulk up and grow. 
not enough stress and your muscles atrophy. But if there's an appropriate amount of stress, this is where we do our best work. It's where our capacity grows, our creativity grows. And so just a little bit above the appropriate challenge area. Another question is this. Whose responsibility is it to move you out of the under-challenged area or overly-challenged area? Now, we're tempted to say it's my boss's responsibility. It's the organization's responsibility. But friends, I'm telling you, it's your responsibility. If you are under-challenged or dangerously over-challenged, you've got to talk to your supervisor about that. Or you've got to make an adjustment in your life or your expectations of yourself. But it's, it's really your responsibility to change that. But I'm telling you, if you got the God alignment, passion alignment, challenge alignment right, you're on your way to a satisfying job. Final one is this, compensation alignment. Jesus said in the Gospels, a worker deserves his or her wages. Now, Jesus taught that when somebody works, they should be compensated. But everybody knows there's an astonishing disparity in the marketplace with wage levels. The dilemma many people face is how do I pursue my passion but also make a decent living? Um, you know, do I follow my passion and earn a lot less? Or do I go for the big salary and just disregard my passion? Now, for those of you who are working in your area of passion and you're being paid well, you are like a minority on planet Earth. You ought to get on your knees every day and thank God that you're in your area of passion and getting paid well. Most people don't get a chance to do that. Most people have to make an agonizing choice between working in areas of passion or in areas that pay enough. Now, there's no easy answer to this. I've seen, but I've seen able-bodied people virtually bankrupt their families because they refuse to take a job that they weren't 100% passionate about. And they lost their marriage. Some of these families did, lost their home, lost everything. 1 Timothy 5.8, look what it says. If a person doesn't provide for his family, he has denied the faith. This verse seems to be saying that part of the Christian faith is that if you're a provider, guy or gal, you've got to provide. Part of your responsibility, whether it's in your passion or not. On the other hand, are people who make career choices based solely on big salaries. And they end up losing touch with their God-given passions. You know, they've got the big house and nice cars, but they're dead inside. There's no life in their eyes. And I go, really? You're, you're going to give 30 to 40 years of your life to something you hate? Now, when I'm asked about this by somebody who's stuck in a job that's not aligned with their passion or stuck in a job they love but can't pay the bills. Here's what I say. There's no easy answer. I mean, you got to seek God's wisdom on that, but sometimes the answer is, you know, maybe, maybe you should work at your high-paying, sucky job for a while, maybe 10 or 15 years, put in your time, and then maybe you have options and you can make a change then. Or maybe offset this high-paying job that you don't like by volunteering in areas of your passion so that you, your soul has life. Or, you know, maybe work in your area of passion with lower pay 
But then you got to pick up some part-time work or have your wife or your husband pick up some other work to bridge that financial gap. But there's no easy answer. you got to figure it out. I mentioned our canoe trip earlier. I said 80% of it is awful. It's not fun. It's hard. Our shoulders ache. Our muscles burn. Hands get blistered. Feet are always wet and cold. When we finally reach camp after 12 hours of driving from Minneapolis to Ely and then portaging in, you know, six or seven hours, when we finally reach our campsite, we just stumble and fall. And we just kind of lay around like, oh, that was really hard. About an hour later, we kind of show signs of life. 80% of it is really, really hard. But the other 20% is so great that it's worth it. Big walleyes every year. Golden brown fish fried over the open fire. A connection with friends that's very rare. And the repairing of our souls during those four days that wouldn't happen if we just flew in somewhere and everything was taken care of. Now, I think there's a parallel to work. About 80% of our work often is very, very hard. But there's a 20% payoff you can't get any other way. Having a purpose. Accomplishing something. Forming relationships at work. Developing skills. Building a home and future. Solomon says, look, everybody should find satisfaction in your work. It's from the hand of God. Now, one final word for those of you who are stuck in a really lousy job. This comes from the Old Testament person, Ruth. Just give me one minute for this. Ruth was a widow who wound up living with her mother-in-law during a bad famine in Jerusalem. So three negative things. She lost her husband, got to live with her mother-in-law, which, you know, and it's a famine. It's a bad famine. So she, just to survive, she says to her mother-in-law, let me go into the fields and gather grain, leftover grain, that's left by the harvesters. Just got left there. It, was, it wasn't picked up. Basically, scrounging around for grain that had fallen behind these people, not a fun job. No benefits. But day after day, Ruth goes out to gather grain. She gets noticed by a wealthy and God-honoring man named Boaz. Boaz sees how hard she works, decides to give her full access to his fields, and then starts giving her supplies and extra food so that she and her mother-in-law can live a little bit better. Boaz begins noticing something else about Ruth, asks her for a date, then asks her to marry him, which she does. They have a son named Obed, who became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of King David, the great-grandfather of King Solomon, the guy who wrote this book. All because Ruth went to work and did what she could do. And God blessed her in ways she never saw coming. Friends, I know some of you are in a lousy job and it's hard every single day, but God sees you and he's going to honor that. He will. 
And just parenthetically, if you're a widow here today, or if you're a single gal, maybe you should consider taking up farming. I don't know. And some rich guy will come and see you, and it'll be sweet. Now you're laughing, but I'm telling you, God can do stuff like that. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. It's from the hand of God. Next weekend, I get a chance to speak on this topic, a time to grow old. I'm going to be talking about the aging process. I'm going to be talking about youth and what's important for us to, take, to pay attention to as we travel through. And I'm looking forward. It's going to be a ball. I invite you back next week. And at all campuses, let's stand for closing prayer. God, thank you for uh, the smile and the laughter that we can enjoy as people in a church. Thank you for each person who took time out today and uh, put out the effort to get to a place of worship. And I pray that you'll honor each person for doing that. God, I pray that you will help us find satisfaction in our jobs. They're hard. 80% of it can be really tough. But I pray that we'll begin to understand that this is a gift from you and that, that our Wednesdays are as important to you as our Sundays. God, be with every person here who is dangerously overchallenged. Give them wisdom to know how to change that. For those who are under-challenged, give them the motivation to change that. God, for those of us who are in a really hard place, just give us hope and strength and courage. Protect us as we go to that place of work, maybe with a really tough boss or co-worker. Be in that, God, I pray. We love you. Thank you for this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, come on up. Thanks for coming out, everybody.